0: Well, uh, keep your Bibles open uh, to Numbers 13, Uh, and if you've got one of those red things uh, in your Bibles, keep it in uh, Hebrews uh, 4, or if you've got a finger, uh, put it into Hebrews 4, because we'll we'll come back to Hebrews 4 near the end of our sermon. Uh, It's great to be here with uh, everyone, uh, my name is Sam. Um, I'm on staff, uh, working especially with uh, serving the nine o'clock congregation here. Um, and uh, I love being part of the community here and um, actually being able to uh, <laughs> actually being able to uh, sing or at least hum to the tune of songs that I know. That was written 20 years ago, as opposed to the songs that people sing in Sydney um, (laughs) at churches. Um, I have to admit that of all the sermons that I've written uh, in the last 10 years, uh, this was perhaps one of the hardest ones to write. Um, I sat in front of the screen of my laptop uh, two weeks ago uh, for most of the Friday, Uh, Staring at the Bible on my desk and looking at the trees outside, um, and I didn't know where to start. I spent six hours doing that—twelve o'clock to six o'clock. Studied the passage. I'd mapped out the different angles of attacking it, tackling it, but I found it really hard to start because whatever angle I took, I was hitting dead ends. Maybe it's because, like the story, I found it a bit hard to trust God that week. Maybe it's because, like the spies report, I'm a bit tired of leaders in our society and in Christian circles failing to do what is right. Maybe it's because, like Caleb, my voice sounds small in a sea of other voices. Or maybe it's because, like the Israelites, in a frustrating situation, I'm prone to despair and grumbling rather than prayer and waiting. And I just wanted rest. So I sat at my desk and I couldn't think of how to start this sermon. So here we are. We've got no image, no felt need, no big question, no big idea. Um, But for two days... I just sat with God's word and I opened my life to it and listened to what God had to say. And I found that he took me through a journey of processing my own life. And so for the next half an hour or so, whoever you are and wherever you are on your journey of faith, I want to invite you to sit with God's word and open your life to it. Whether your life is filled with doubt or tiredness, lack of courage or despair or grumbling, just for the next half an hour, open your lives up and ask God to speak to you. Why don't we pray? Dear listening God, in our week, we might not know it, We might not feel it, but we are in desperate need of your word and we are in need of your rest. Open our lives. Help us place our lives in front of your word today. And by the spirit, breathe in us grace, renewal, comfort, we pray. Amen. Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites, Yahweh said to Moses. Now, Israel is on the brink of the promised land. They're at Kadesh, at the desert of Paran. And we've got a map here to help us, um, thankfully, with the nine o'clock congregation. Uh, So they traveled from Egypt down to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted. They went through down to Mount Sinai where they saw God, and now they're in Kadesh, which is somewhere here. The desert. This is the wilderness of Paran, Kadesh, the Negev, and Canaan land. They're right there on the edge, the precipice of uh, the promised land. They're poised to enter. It's a land that God had promised them, a land that's been waiting for them since God gave his word to their forefathers, Abraham, uh, many, many generations ago. And for 400 years, as we've heard uh, in our series, uh, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And by this generation, probably 400 years is around six to seven generations. By this generation, the promise of Yahweh to Abraham may probably have been a myth by then to them. A story passed down for six, seven generations. Whatever home or Canaan or Yahweh was, might not have been, might be just a story. They might have forgotten Yahweh, their God. But Yahweh didn't forget, did he? Yahweh, God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Remembered his promise and we heard sent miraculous plagues uh, in victory over Egypt, redeemed them from slavery, guided them with columns of fire and pillars of cloud through the desert, protected them when he parted the Red Sea to guide them home. And this promise and promise maker was no longer a myth passed down from parent to child. But he was real and living, standing in front of them, thundering and sparking lightning on the top of Mount Sinai. And now they're on chapter 13 in Numbers. They're on the precipice. They're at Paran, the edge of the promised land, and it's right in front of them. But this is generation, if you think about it. No one in this generation, probably except for Moses, has ever stepped foot out of Egypt. They don't know Canaan land. They don't know what this land is and what it looks like. Every step they've made so far has been a step into the unknown. And this very next step into the promised land is also a step into the unknown. For all they know, beyond the desert of Paran could very well be deserts after deserts after deserts. All they had to trust on, all they had to trust was God's promise. Yes, they've seen God's miraculous work. Yes, they've seen grace and mercy and protection and the deliverance of God. And Hebrew says the good news. But they still haven't seen what actually lies ahead, right? Is it going to be a good land? Is it fruitful? What's in the unknown? During the week, uh, my other job in Sydney uh, is a ministry worker for Living Faith, uh, which is an organisation that provides pastoral care uh, and support for Christians who experience attraction to the same gender and also for Christians who experience gender incongruence. And I sit down every week And I listen to many stories of Christians in around Sydney and the world who who share these experiences and trust Jesus and God. And I think they ask very similar questions to the Israelites. Is the path ahead worth walking? Yes, we've we've experienced (laughs) Jesus as Lord and Saviour, Yes, they've experienced the grace of God. Yes, they've had the Holy Spirit within them. Yes, they believe that the Bible and its teaching on sexuality is faithfulness in marriage between a man and a woman and faithfulness in singleness. They commit to that wholeheartedly. But what does the path ahead look like? Sometimes all they see and hear at churches are singles looking for a spouse Couples getting engaged, having children, parenting seminars, marriage retreats. What does a life worth of faithfulness look like? What does a life possibly without romance or sex or biological children or grandchildren look like? Is this path worth following? For all they know, it could very well be deserts of loneliness one after the other until the end. Give me a break. Just give me a rest. And all they have to trust on is a promise. Maybe that's us as well. Perhaps it might not be sexuality or gender. You might believe in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. You might have experienced the grace of God. You might have the Holy Spirit within you. But when you face the next unknown, which looks like a desert... And all you have are words linked together into sentences, forming a promise. Sometimes that could be very hard to hold on to. How would that surgery for grandma go next week? How will that change her life and our lives? What does the quality of life look like after this last session of chemotherapy? How will I navigate this strange... Oh, this strange new stage of my life called um, it's adolescence here but there's no one in adolescence here how would I navigate this strange new life called retirement <laughs> with all the free time that I have will that couples counselling on Thursday afternoon really resolve the conflict that's been brewing for years what's the path of healing and reconciliation look like Well, that adult child of mine who've wandered away from Jesus, what would that look like for them? Will they come back? Sometimes words are just letters on a page and promises are just sentences strung together. And we're left to wonder how life-giving they can be. We just want rest and reassurance that the path ahead is good. Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites, said Yahweh, their God. Why does God command them to to explore Canaan? Well, to be honest, God doesn't need scouts to tell God what's ahead, right? He made everything, so He pretty much knows the land and what's going to be in it. So He's asking the Israelites to explore, not for God's sake but for the Israelites' sake, right? It's a mission for the Israelites to show them that Yahweh is a trustworthy God. Send the people in, bring something back so that the rest of the nation will see that I am the trustworthy God. So Moses does that. 12 leaders from 12 tribes and one by one, they're named and on face value or perhaps name value, they appear to be ideal, trustworthy leaders. And thank you so much for reading through all those difficult names. But um, let me just help you uh, look at these names as I translate them from Hebrew. Shamuah in Hebrew means the one who has heard. Um, Shafat Judge or the one who makes justice. Chelev, the dog or the wholehearted loyal one. uh, Igal, the the redeemed. Hosea, he helps, he saves, which he's going to change his name later to uh, Joshua, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. Palti, my deliverance. Gadiel, one of my favourites, young goat of God or perhaps coriander of God or I think more the providence of God. Gadi, my fortune. Amiel, God is my protector. Zeter, a hiding place. Nathbi, concealed. Gewel, majesty of God. Twelve names. Of 12 leaders who, on seeing them, would be the 12 ideal people to send. So Moses sends them through the Negev, which is the bottom of uh, the south, which is the southern part of Israel, and then into the hill country. And then Moses asked them to note a few things. Clarify for us what's in the land. Is it good? Is it bad? Is the people there uh, mighty? Is it fortified, the cities? Uh, Is the soil good? So the delegates do that. And then they go to Zin, which is on the very southern edge of future Israel, all the way up to Rehov uh, Lebo Hamat, which is right at the northern tip of Israel. So for the 40 days that they've journeyed in Israel, they effectively journeyed from the bottom of future Israel all the way to the top. They saw descendants of Anach, and then they cut off a cluster of grapes and some pomegranates and figs to bring back. After 40 days, they come back. Have a look with me in verse, where is it? First 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community who had all been waiting for them at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. And I think they gave it to everyone as well because the people talk afterwards. They said, verse 27, we went into the land to which you sent us and it does Flow with milk and honey. land is good. There are trees. The soil is good. There's fruit. It flows with milk and honey, which is kind of a metaphor, a symbol for abundance and riches. We've tasted and seen it's good. But then notice how they continue in verse 28. But... The people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, the Hittites, the Jebusites and Amorites and the Canaanites. A Jewish commentator says that the but in verse 28 undermines everything that's said in verse 27. The Souths are really saying, yep, yeah, the land's great. But that's irrelevant because we're never going to get it. And we see that in verse 31, right? We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. It's good, but it's not worth it. We won't be able to inherit land. Then to perpetuate this idea, they, verse 32, they spread a bad report or ancient fake news. They start saying that the land devours those who live in it. They start saying that they saw Nephilim. If you know Genesis, these giant people who were born from potentially angels and humans. But did they really see Nephilim? How did they know what Nephilim looked like when the last time someone saw the Nephilim was... 500 years before that? 600, 700 years? Are they connecting a people to a myth? Or are they using a myth to create a possible danger? Now, whether or not they saw the Nephilim remains ambiguous, but I think they are slightly over-exaggerating their report. They've seen the land. They've tasted the land. It was a land of beauty and abundance. But... They decide to turn God's people away from inheriting it. Now, we could give them a benefit of the doubt, right? They, they could be leaders who really cared for God's people. And they're kind of saying in this report, don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? I've got a bad feeling about this. We've just gone from 400 years of slavery, and now we're going to this unknown land with all these people we kind of want to can our chickens before we go in there or else we might get enslaved again. So maybe the better thing to do is not enter. Now, they could, they, I, I, it's not in there, but they could possibly have good intentions. But whatever their intentions might be, we see one major problem in their report. Just have a look with me in verse 1 again. 13, verse 1. Yahweh said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. But in the leader's report, Yahweh isn't even mentioned. He's not even part of the equation. Rather than saying, asking, How can we receive this land from God because we've seen so many bad people there, or big people? They ask, how can we get this land with our own hands? And so, strangely enough, their names become even more ironic. Shamuah, the one who has heard, forgets that God was the one who heard them, right? In Exodus 2, when they cried out to God. Shaphat, the one who makes justice, forgets that the justice of God was the one that brought them out of the injustice of Egypt. Egal, the one who redeems, forgets God's redemption from slavery. Palti, my deliverance, forgets that it's God's deliverance from the plagues uh, and the Egyptian army. Gadiel, the providence of God. They forget that just two chapters ago. The quail was sent to them to eat when they were hungry. Amiel, God is my protector, they forget that God protected them all this time. Zether and Nachvi, hiding place and I conceal, forgets that God hides them and conceals them and shelters them. Geuel completely forgets the majesty of God. The leaders of God's people forget their names, forget their roles, forgets their task, and ultimately, get their God. Instead of reminding God's people to trust God, they use their power, knowingly or unknowingly, and lead God's people astray. And you know what the saddest thing is? The saddest thing, I think, well, maybe one of the saddest things of chapter 13, is that of all the people of Israel... Every one of them. Only these 12 have seen the Canaan land. Nobody else has. These were the only 12 who ventured into the Canaan land. The rest of Israel were relying on the words of these 12. And 10 of them misused their words and take God out of the picture. And the really, really sad thing is, they bring back all this fruit, pomegranates and grapes and figs, and they dangle it in a way. They probably weren't doing it on purpose, but they dangle it in front of the people of Israel and say, look how good it is. But nah, we'll never get it. And in so doing, they knowingly or unknowingly provoke God's people into anger, and rebellion towards God. I think they've they've misused the power that they had. I don't know about you, but over the past year I've grown weary of the misuse of power by Christian leaders. I've seen Christian leaders use their power and their knowledge of the Bible, but rather than speaking about following God, they talk they say that holiness is following a particular political party line rather than holiness is following Jesus. And they say Christian commitment and loyalty is being committed and loyal to a particular set of values for a country rather than commitment and loyalty to the kingdom of God. Recently, we've been hearing reports about how a renowned international apologist had for decades used his power and position to manipulate women for sex. When allegations came out in the past, he would use his power to go to court uh, and and issue non-disclosure agreements. Dissenting voices in his organisation were shut down, marginalised and eventually fired. I've seen Christian leaders use their power to deny that racism occurs, to deny that abuse of LGBT people occurred, to maintain that the onus of sexual purity, harassment and rape is somehow on how women choose to dress or present themselves rather than a man's restraint of his behaviour. I think when we look around the world, we can get tired and weary in a world where power is often misused, and we can get disillusioned when it's misused by people who claim uh, to use it in the name of Jesus. We just want rest, rest from systems and people and users and abusers. We could think that the failures of the leaders in Numbers 13 are a millennia more than that uh, ago, But they very much continue today. Who will stand up? Well, the small voice of Caleb, one of the 12. He quiets the people in um, verse 30. We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But it's no use. Joshua, the son of Nun, stands up to his name. Yahweh says... Chapter 14, verse seven. The land we pass through and explored is exceedingly good. If Yahweh is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey and will give it to us. Only don't rebel against Yahweh. And do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but Yahweh is with us. Do not be afraid. It was no use... We find that the nation of Israel, they weep in chapter 14, verse 1. And then they take the step further. Have a look with me. Flip over to chapter 14, verse 2. They grumbled. And then the whole assembly said to Moses and Aaron, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert Why is Yahweh bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, we should choose a new leader, a leader, and go back to Egypt. Verse 10, the whole assembly talked about stoning Caleb and Joshua. It's a massive turnaround, isn't it? God chose Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, but now they want to choose someone else to go back into slavery. They cried out to God to listen to them, to rescue them from slavery, but now they're grumbling against God and they want to go back to Egypt. We see in Numbers 13 that the lack of trust in the leaders, a small group of people who has power, influence the lack of trust of a whole group of people. And at the end of that story, they were ready to pick up stones and kill the two only two people who spoke the truth. It was hard writing this sermon because... Over the past few weeks, I've been increasingly weighed down with seeing Christian leaders knowingly or unknowingly misusing their power. Um, And that, it wasn't just a slip of the moment thing. It was systemic. It's been happening for decades without accountability. And I think, yes, we're all individual sinners. International leaders who fail are no different than we who fail. They are human and shouldn't be demonised. And we should walk towards healing and reconciliation. But like Numbers 13, the misuse of power in a few can lead to disastrous effects for the culture of the whole. And I ask myself sometimes, what sort of impact does a lack of transparency have for those who are vulnerable in our churches What sort of environments are there where we might be scared to talk up about some things? How long has this been going for and how many other leaders follow in these leaders' footsteps unknowingly? And more sadly, I think, have we ever asked the question of what these failures look like to those who don't trust in Jesus? Does it discredit the gospel And a trust of God for the many who are broken and in need of the gospel. We just want rest from toxic cultures and environments. See, we get to the end of Numbers 13 and 14 and it's a story of failure. The small voices of Joshua and Caleb are unheard. Moses and Aaron, in verse 5, they fall face down, not in prayer to God, but to the people of God. No trust is placed on God at all. And in facing this rebellion, God acts. The people of God go to wander the desert for the next 40 years. Moses, Aaron, 10 of those leaders, and the rest of Israel, except for Caleb and Joshua, they all die. A whole generation. Never enter the promised land. Only their children and Caleb and Joshua do. The story of Numbers 13 is a story of complete systemic failure from the leaders down to the people. And friends, I think we live in a Numbers 13 world as well. Not only because of the continued failures we see today, but because it's an example for us, the promise promise of entering The promised land is given to us. Flip over now to Hebrews and we'll read from chapter 3, verse 15. As has just been said, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry, God, for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest, still stands. Let us be careful that none of us be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not share the faith of those who obeyed. As you open your lives this evening to God's word in Numbers 13, where do you sit yourselves? And I think this is an appropriate question to ask. Are you an abuser of power, knowingly or unknowingly? Because I think every one of us, wherever we are, have have a circle of power that we exercise. Whether or not we are in, in official places of power or official roles of power, we do have spheres of influence in our lives. And the question, I think, from Numbers 13 and 14 is how are we using the power that we have? Because... A little lack of trust can lead to disastrous effects for the people you lead in whatever capacity. Are you an abuser? If you are, there is grace and forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ in your repentance and faith. And there is also a need for you to reconcile with those around you to stamp out the environments and the cultures that has been created because of the misuse of power. And I think as we come to an end, our yearning for rest is given to us through a true chamois. A leader who does listen, a true egal, a leader who does redeem. It's through a true Palti, someone who delivers. It's a true Caleb, someone who is loyal, a true Gewel, someone who shows us the majesty of God. It's this great leader who enters into the world of Numbers 13, into a world of tumultuous uncertainty and unknown, and makes a path for us to follow by laying his life down for us. It's this great leader who gives us a way to enter into the eternal rest of God where we can be free from abuses and misuses of power where trauma and tears are wiped away. It's this leader who brings back a foretaste of that land by giving us the spirit of the almighty God as a down payment within us. He shows us the fruits of the resurrection body that is never fading. And he gives us an imperishable hope hidden in heaven. It's this great leader that, who shows us that, being, that following him doesn't demand perfection, but obedience does mean repentance. And I think he calls out to us with the very voice of Yeshua in Numbers 13. The land that I'm taking you is exceedingly good because of what I've done The Lord is pleased with us. I will lead you you into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and I will give it to you. Only do not rebel against Yahweh, your God, and do not be afraid, for I have overcome the world. Let's pray. As we inhale today and realise where we are before you, O God, we exhale and give you our worries and cares because through the true Yeshua, you give us rest and peace, knowing you have walked every step before us. And it's in this Yeshua's name we pray. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.